welcome. I'm clinical psychologist Dr. Steve Thayer, and this is Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and mental health. My co-host is Dr. Reed Robison. Reed is a psychiatrist and a seasoned psychedelic researcher and clinician. Today, Reed and I are joined by Derek Moody. Derek is a physician assistant with extensive experience in the use of ketamine to treat a variety of mental health conditions. In this episode, we discuss whether or not the mystical experience occasioned by psychedelics is necessary for them to have a therapeutic effect. This is a hot issue in the psychedelic therapy community right now, as university labs and pharmaceutical companies are trying to create psychedelics that, well, aren't psychedelic. So buckle up as we tackle this issue. All right, gentlemen, welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. Um, I thought today we could tackle the mystical experience. Um, There's a little bit of controversy lately. I was reading an article in Nature um, that was talking about this uh, researcher, I think at UC Davis, who was looking into ways to identify new psychedelic compounds that don't occasion the mystical experience. Basically, they were talking about, um, you know, the psychedelic effect of psychedelics being a side effect that complicates treatment. Let's see if we can cut that out and um, retain all the therapeutic effects in a psychedelic. And so this has the, the, you know, the OGs of the psychedelic world upset. So I thought we could talk about it. We could talk about the, the role that we think the mystical experience plays in psychedelic medicine and therapeutic healing um, and whether or not it makes sense to try to come up with psychedelic interventions that don't contain the mystical experience. I call blasphemy. <laughs> yeah, who's going to be good cop, bad cop in this one? What was the role? <laughs> yeah, this is this is total heresy in the I think in, in the psychedelic world. Well, what's your opinion, Derek? Start with mm-hmm. me. Yeah, give it. Well, to okay, so I'll be a little bit of bad cop. Uh, at least in some of the articles that I've read, in the minimal reading that I've done during my lunch breaks. I'll pull out these articles from like the, I think like the Lancet, it was one that we have, and the Psychiatric Times, and they'll they'll put out some evidence looking at PHQ-9s and will show there's not a significant difference in depression, in depression scores between something like a low dose of Spravato and a higher dose of Spravato, or even Spravato versus ketamine. And in a lot of the other literature, which they have not really done a good job going into the depth of those, but they usually will group 0.5 milligrams of, per kilogram of ketamine and one milligram per kilogram of ketamine, which is a pretty big difference yeah. in terms of the psychedelic intensity as roughly the same in results. Mm-hmm. So because of how you're kind of trained with a lot of medicine, I usually try to yield to more of the research there and give that a little bit more of an edge than just my own personal experience because I haven't seen that really play out very well in my clinical experience. So there is conflict, inner conflict within myself okay. because there there are those articles, which is why we bring this up. There are articles that do show that and it's, you have to give a little respect to the evidence mm-hmm. that, that that is presented. But then we, there's obviously counter evidence to that clinical experience. And I think all of us have are mm-hmm. more all on that side of seeing something beneficial in the mystical experience so that's your clinical experience is more uh more values the mystical experience absolutely 
Yeah, maybe we should pump the brakes a little bit because I think uh, a lot of our audience are going to be clinicians in the know, right? They, they understand psychedelics. They understand what the mystical experience is. For those of our audience that don't, maybe we should define what we mean by the mystical experience. What are yeah, the... I was going to... I was curious to see what yeah. your guys' opinions were on that because I have really broad categories because mm-hmm. I... I this this is you guys can criticize me for this later. But oh, we will. Like a <laughs> a very broad category of mystical experience. I'm walking down the street as a teenager and I just see that girl and boom, mm. I'm in love. Mystical experience, right? Something just outerworldly happened to me mm-hmm. has filled me with this intense motivation that is powerful enough to really just change my direction. So that'd be like a yeah. a random lay term uh, mystical experience and. Yeah. And if you look through your life, you'll have these moments of time where just life hits you in this very powerful, dramatic way, like the revelation, the epiphany moment. The eureka. And, and this blends in well to the psychedelics because something about psychedelics bring you to that point mm-hmm. in, a, in a more controlled and predictable way than just letting life flow you in that direction. I think you're on to something. I think adolescent love definitely meets the diagnostic criteria for a non-ordinary state of consciousness. (laughs) I miss it desperately. And some of the delusional criteria as well. Um, I think so. No, it's interesting because it used to be that uh, a long-term disciplined spiritual path would get you there. Mm. Like most uh, institutionalized institutions of, uh, you know, seeking whether it's religion or spirituality enlightenment use some kind of non-ordinary state mm-hmm. you know whether mm-hmm. it's um through medicine or other form of devotion ecstatic dance and singing and things like yeah. that fasting um, uh, yeah there's usually an ordeal right a lot of times it's fasting it's sleep deprivation it's uh you know pain and struggle it's a, it's a long hike in the himalayas or something like that well, and, exposure. Even, and and the most milk toast bland is just people reading you know, people will open a book, they'll it's read something and, and something really grabs them mm-hmm. in a non-ordinary way. Yeah. And so now we have these chemical ways of inducing mysticism. And it's interesting to think about because, you know, before you had to dedicate this lifelong path of spiritual discipline or uh, get lucky and have a moment. And it's been described in different ways by like Maslow peak experiences. Jung called it numinous experiences. Stan Groff, who turned 90 yesterday, called it uh, holotropic. And, you know, we have these components of a mystical experience that we can now occasion, we can now quantify and measure. And, you know, you brought up a good point of what is the true value of that beyond the phq9 score Mm -hmm. well and and just if you look at how it's shaped cultures how it's shaped individual lives from just a pure phenomenological perspective the mystical experience like everyone's always looking for the next mystical experience that next great life-changing pivot that revelation it's the golden snitch we're always looking for the golden snitch that's going to completely change the the standard game that we're playing day in and day out day in and day out yeah some call it uh well the same as hunger or sex drive and that humans are drawn to seek this non-ordinary state or this mystical rapture yeah and like a basic 
primal foundational way. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're touching on a couple of the facets mm-hmm. of a mystical experience. There's a, there's a, a noetic quality, like a knowing mm-hmm. deep into your body and your core. Um, and so when, when something, is, and then there's a, there's an insight quality, a psychological insight um, yeah. that usually causes some type of ontological shock. Like, oh my gosh, the way I have viewed the world has now been flipped upside down. And this shift has been destabilizing, uncomfortable maybe, but also revelatory and meaningful. Um, other aspects of the mystical experience. Altered space and time. Yep. You mentioned ineffability. Right, yeah. yeah. That's a good hard meaning meaning it's uh, hard to find the words hard yeah. to describe in words it's like yeah. trying to describe to somebody what salt tastes like and unity mm. that one with the cosmos mm-hmm. and an anomalous is i mean it's kind of similar to some of the other Bizarre. things you said but it just comes as it's it's something new and novel and that's where it gains some of those ineffable components because how do you describe something that you've never described before or mm-hmm. seen before mm-hmm. how if you tasted a new taste you know, this is this new compound. It's like, what is this? How do you even put it into words if it's never, ever been categorized before? You so, try to draw on things you already know. Mm-hmm. But even then, if it's something brand exactly. new, it's, you're not going to be able to describe it with complete fidelity. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because it highlights some component of this that involves chaos. If you're using the very basic archetypes of chaos and order mm-hmm. and the yin and the yang, that there's something about a chaotic about this because of the anomaly, because it's something brand new, something you've never thought before. And it's going to change the natural structure and the natural order that's present. And I think that's important because you're going to see that with the psychedelics as taking you in that hero's journey into a place that's more chaotic. So uh, weird tangent, you saying chaos reminded me of Jordan Peterson. Remind me to show you guys the guy on TikTok who does a hilarious Jordan Peterson impression. (laughs) He's like Jordan Peterson talking about Pokemon. Jordan Peterson ordering it, ordering it Burger King. It's, it's I'll have hilarious. to check that oh, out. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but so chaos, that reminds me of uh, also not only funny Jordan Peterson memes, but um, Car- Robin Carhart Harris's sort of idea about why psychedelics are helpful in healing. The We've talked about it before on the, the podcast. The brain. The entropic brain yeah. that, you know, that uh, it's going from rigidity, too much order, to a little bit of chaos, flexibility, maybe accounts for why psychedelics can be so helpful, especially for conditions like OCD or trauma or, um, you know, treatment-resistant depression. It explains a a lot, that whole chaos and order, yin-yang dynamic, uh, because, you know, as humans, we're in this this uh, experience that has a lot of unpredictability and uncertainty that's uncomfortable, especially like look at the last year or so. When is the pandemic going to end? What's going to happen? Uh, more lockdown, less lockdown. And, and through this uncertainty, through the ages, we've sought ceremony, ritual, and these kinds of kind of states of mystical rapture together, um, communing with the divine to punctuate those uncertain uncomfortable moments with something more like predictable and unifying even though it's a wild weird experience um, we come together uh, because of that discomfort a lot of the time Mm -hmm. or seek psychedelics Mm -hmm. well and if i'm gonna maybe bring some completion to the concept of the chaos and order involved in this the psychedelics 
it's, it's easy to associate a lot of the chaotic component to it, but there is an order that does generally come from it. Because when you highlighted some of these aspects like insight, like if there is an insight, there is, there is something new that's coming out and there is an order behind that. For example, with somebody with ketamine that comes out of that saying, you know, I have value. Like there, there's an order in that statement, in that word. And so yeah. it's, it's probably best to, you know, if I'm sticking it within that Taoist construct that it's that perfect blend, the balance. It is the Tao. That's what the mystical experience where you have yeah. the chaos and order working together. You had to break it, though, before you reassembled the parts into this new beautiful thing. Like maybe you had to go through chaos in order to get to that. It's usually the first step, right? Like yeah. we're always kind of stuck in our spot and you have to be willing to go out. That's like that first step in the hero's journey. Mm. Especially if you have those tightly held ego structures. Mm-hmm. And what you said, Derek, I like because it helps explain how or why psychedelics work for someone in a state of more entropy, like an addictive pattern where they, they have lost control and they're repeating a behavior or even depression where you can't get out of bed, but it also works for someone on the other end of the spectrum of over control, rigidity, like OCD, I cannot touch this germ or anorexia, I, I cannot let myself eat that. In that case, like Steve's saying, you break down the, the order and reassemble it um, like that entropic brain theory talks about, but in the disordered state already helps you restore balance. Do you remember, Steve, the, uh, is it, I can't remember his name exactly, I'll probably mispronounce it, like James A. Prochowska, is he the one that did the stages of change? Do you remember yeah. that? Am I getting the right guy There's a lot, I don't know, there's lots of stages yeah. of change people, but yeah. So, I, I remember, this was all in like, under, exactly, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah that yeah. stuff. And I remember in my undergrad that it's like, just highlighting these stages doesn't mean that you're just going to automatically progress through them. Yeah. It's just, we're saying like when somebody goes through the process of change, they have to go through each one. They generally go through these steps. Yeah. And so when you ask this question, is the mystical experience necessary? One of the ways you could even just to alter the question and say, it's a step, you know, it'd be interesting to put that as a new little highlighted star asterisks in the stages of change and say, this is part of change. Yeah. If you look at people's lives and, and that's why it's exciting because it's like, this is such a powerful sought after tremendously huge cultural, um, cultural historical piece to change and therapy and healing. And now we're finding a way to tap into this. And, mm-hmm. and it is, I would say it is a necessary part to change. It is, opens the door to mm-hmm. it, gets you on the path to it. Yeah. yeah. More so from a psychological if I was, here's my nerdy moment on the, uh, maybe I'll yield to Dr. Rob mm-hmm. to, to read to, to finish the fill in the blanks. But, you know, when it comes to something like ketamine, it can still do some positive changes without the mystical experience. I do believe yeah. that. I mean, we have some of the evidence in the pathways affecting glutamate and NMDA with these outward effects of eventually leading to neurological growth factors that can show positive healing physically physiologically biologically in the brain and so yes that occurs but obviously through the context of something in dr thayer's domain of psychotherapy i'm sure it's like well yeah this this epiphany moment is always part of the process when people are making especially climactic changes yeah the revelation the epiphany it it is important um 
there's another aspect of the mystical experience that I think is also connected to change, like we're talking about, and that's that sense of, of awe, where mm-hmm. your place in the universe is put into perspective. We've talked before about, you know, psychedelic medicines being chemical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard to have without some type of phenomenological experience. If you take a medicine and you don't sense anything different, but a few weeks later you maybe don't smoke as often or something like that, like, okay, there's some change that's happened there. Um, but if we're looking for big pivots, it's my opinion that, that you know, the mystical experience, particularly that sense of awe and, you know, you are placed in the universe reorganized is huge. Mm-hmm. I was talking yeah. to someone the other day who had a really meaningful psilocybin experience. Um, and, and what was so meaningful for him about it was the mystical type experience that provided him a different perspective on his worth, on his relationships to other people. It moved him from avoidance of emotion to allowance and accepting of emotion. It moved him from uh, rejection and judgment of others and himself to understanding, compassion, and acceptance of himself. And I've talked to people who have come to those conclusions, not only because the experience was wild and mystical, but because it was, I mean, they had an encounter with an entity or something like that. There yeah. was a guide or a, you know, a, they talked to God um, or they talked to their grandmother who showed up as God. Uh, and it was because of the, the bizarre, memorable, dreamlike phenomenology that they were able to really adopt and integrate, ingrain these changes. Yeah, it's it's non called non ordinary for a reason, mm-hmm. you know. And I remember hearing that Carl Jung back in the day, pre psychedelics. I mean, psychedelics have been around a long time, but he he did not have access to them in therapy like we do now. And I remember um, reading about him saying once he was so frustrated with treating something like alcoholism. Because if only he could occasion a spiritual, transpersonal experience to help someone, like, see the forest from the trees and see their their worth, the path, that radical change of perspective. And now we have that ability. It's coming more and more, and, and it's a really interesting question of uh, what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. That is the question. What do we do with it? How do we harness this power? And and I think we've t- discussed some of that in previous podcasts and like the potential, you know, risk and benefit to that, because as with any tool and instrument, it can be used in appropriate ways as well as negative ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting when you bring up that aspect of awe, though, because there's and, and don't want to de- just derail the conversation there. But How it's interesting because you. it goes. Mm-hmm. Well, there's like a metaphysical component to that, mm-hmm. you know, like what is it that's somebody is experiencing that is generating that awe because just in the most basic way of describing it it's like there's you and you're having this experience with something greater something higher Mm -hmm. like with the universe itself or that unnameable thing this ineffable and that's i mean it obviously there's no shortage of interesting metaphysical explanations on that but it's pretty interesting that there is this metaphysical component that's very difficult to explain has been debated about for millennia. Yeah, it's one of the qualities that separates us from other animals, that we can reflect on our own consciousness and we can reflect on our own position in the universe. Hmm. And I think it's responsible for a lot of our suffering too. Like you don't see a lot of other animals committing suicide. You don't see a lot of other animals doing things deliberately to harm themselves. Is it lemmings? Is that the only... 
You know, I've heard that, that <laughs> lemmings do that. Zebras don't get ulcers. They, apparently not. Yeah, according to Sapolsky. Um, but yeah, we also have these these weird connections between pleasure and pain that other animals don't have. We're, we're bizarre creatures, human beings. So there's something about like us in reference to something greater that is super important for our mental health because mm-hmm. it helps us connect to meaning and. That's a consistent theme I've seen in yeah. psychedelic assisted therapy is that it helps people connect to meaning where before they didn't have it. And, you know, some people make arguments, uh, the most recent of which I've read is uh, Jamie Wheel in his book, uh, Recapture the Rapture, make arguments about our mental health, health crisis right now being a crisis of meaning mm-hmm. and connection and purpose. Yeah. Well, that's, that's significant because it kind of t- ties into something that Reed said earlier about a craving you know we have these fundamental biological cravings sex drive if you get hungry enough like something just kicks in Mm -hmm. and what reed was alluding to is that there may be this fundamental craving for the mystical experience which would actually pretty i think that would map pretty well onto some of the 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 weird evolutionary component to this like why in the world is our brain even capable of doing this right mystery number one like Mm -hmm. how did the brain actually have the capability of having the mystical experience even if it's induced by something as random as two bushes trees plants i don't know don't want to offend anyone with ayahuasca you know the two Mm -hmm. different (laughs) plants bringing them together like why why can a brain even do this you know you don't have the capacity to fly just all of a sudden Mm -hmm. like you don't have the biological architecture to do that but you do have the biological architecture to leave your body go fly across the universe and see old dead people and talk with Abraham Lincoln's ghost. Like that's in there somehow. (laughs) You know, the question, the answer to that question, I think hinges on the answer to the age old debate of what is consciousness? Um, Is it a material thing uh, or not? Are we, is that the primary reality? Because if you look at uh, the normal everyday consciousness as suboptimal like some schools of thought do some eastern philosophies then the mystical experiences where we came from or the optimal versus so it's not how can we do that it's how do we get stuck in this illusion with mm. blinders on mm. and clouded vision um in this everyday reality you yeah know? consciousness atrophied you know we have this unexercised atrophied consciousness that we think is normal maybe it's not yeah, we, you just was that the dang it? Is it red pill or blue pill? <laughs> you Which want, is the right one? I can't you want remember. The blue pill. I want the blue pill. You just well, I want the blue <laughs> pill. <laughs> I'm not going to speak for Derek. Maybe you want to go back into the matrix and have that steak and that wine, and I'd probably just take them both. Just be yeah. like, <laughs> see what happens. Okay, right. Derek, go we're purple. leaving the matrix. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, this isn't actually this whole podcast is an elaborate intervention to tell Derek that this is actually the matrix. This is actually, oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so I've always found it interesting that when you measure the mystical experience through, say, a validated rating scale like the MEQ-30, one of the most common ways we measure this, and you measure whether or not someone goes through the dark night of the soul through something like the emotional breakthrough inventory that the folks at Imperial College developed, when you have a high score on both, that's when people are more likely to have lasting change. There's evidence from the psilocybin literature that shows that. So, you know, we measure it quite often here in studies with ketamine. I've, I, I've used it in 
ayahuasca retreat settings countless times because even in real time we could see, whoa, they just had a complete mystical experience and faced something extremely challenging and made it through the other side. You could see why that's a, a recipe or formula for lasting positive change. We see the same thing in near-death experiences. I mean, yeah. I, I wonder how many... I wonder if we've ever, if people have ever given the MEQ to people with NDEs. Yeah. So the other day, um, a friend who had come in here for ketamine for the first time said uh, of, of the experience, "Whoa, that was terrifying!" And I thought I was going to die. It's like a near-death experience. And then, uh, and then me and uh, another person were like, "Well, how?" how was it? How's your depression? My depression is gone. <laughs> like, you know, at first I was like, Oh no, sorry. But, but it was actually extremely profound. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you come close to the thing that all human beings and animals and, you know, things that live are wired to avoid their own demise, you, you approach that thing that we're so afraid of and you go through it and then come back. I can only imagine the kind of perspective that gives a person hmm. on problems that, you know, after the experience, they're thinking, why did I care about that stuff? And that's the stuff we often hear reported after near-death experiences, but also intensely mystical psychedelic experiences is like, well, I don't care what other people think of me. Uh, I need to be kinder to my family. I need to spend more time with my loved ones. I need to not pull 100-hour work weeks. I, I, need to be, I need to be better to my planet, you know? I need to stop using yeah. single-use plastics and stuff like that. It's interesting because yeah. I know that there's like the research in end-of-life care where they've administered psychedelics and that's really, really yeah. beneficial because exposure therapy is one of the most basic and prominent principles of mm -hmm. psychotherapy. But I can't expose you to death ethically. <laughs> I don't have second. the power to just like bring you to the verge of death. What about a... Bob just popped into my yeah, head? Yeah, I know. Are we validating death therapy from what I'm Exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, that's what psychedelics are. It's, yeah. it's a version of that because where else can you get that exposure to actual death? Mm -hmm. And, and there is something beneficial and healing in that because as you said, like once you've confronted that, well, not not so much worried about anything else like that worry goes away just like when the guy yeah. finally confronts the girl and overcomes some of those anxieties like oh that wasn't nearly as bad as i thought he's no longer out of the what ifs in his head because this this is a repeated theme with these psychedelics is that it hits you with experience it's there's an experience attached to this which is probably why it's yeah. so consistently being able to produce these mystical experiences because it is an experience it's hard to get that if you're just reading a book. Hard to get that oh, yeah. if you're just walking down the street. But this, the, the fact that it just produces this experience that you are going to be able to navigate and have something that you can carry with you as you move on throughout the rest of your life. Yeah, it, it lights. It's a complete sensory experience. Like you said, which is very different than talking about it. It's like we, we do in the emotion-focused therapy world or with chair work for example it's very different to just tell your therapist yeah i love my spouse versus getting in front of them or a chair with a, a version of them in your mind's eye saying i love you to them you know from your heart to theirs um, that embodied experience is so much more memorable and and potentially transformational okay. yeah i think it's a more powerful learning tool I, I started my career as a therapist as a more of a top-down therapist using cognitive behavioral techniques um and 
as I got interested in psychedelic medicine, I, I, I'm more drawn to inside out, you know, bottom up yeah. approaches. The Embodied and somatic yeah. approaches mm. that can get a, a, away from this labyrinth of the mind. We can do some impressive mental gymnastics as humans to talk ourselves out of things or rationalize away things. But once you've had that like whole body rapture, it's harder to deny. Mm-hmm. So is, is a psychedelic a phenomenological intervention or a neurological intervention, probably both. Mm-hmm. We have neurological interventions in the forms of lots of other chemicals that don't necessarily produce a phenomenological experience, but do lead to behavior change, lead to thinking changes and emotion changes, right? Mm-hmm. Like if Derek suddenly injected me with uh, a sedative, I would appear to be different. <laughs> I would behave differently. Mm-hmm. I might think differently for a while. So is a phenomenological experience, right? Is a mystical experience required for changes? I think, you know, that simple statement, maybe we could answer no, maybe not required. We have evidence that it's not. But it has some potential. Definitely. And just like when when Derek was talking about near-death experiences, not every psychedelic experience results in a near-death experience, Mm -hmm. right? And not everyone is intensely emotional challenging even but there's still benefit there which is why i like the potential benefit there i like how the mystical experience questionnaires break it down into categories of of yeah there might be some types of it with that are uh challenging near death but there are others that just create a sense of unity that uh changes you in other ways like you were saying about being more compassionate towards yourself to others to the planet things like that even without uh the dark night of the soul Mm -hmm. i would say in order for change to occur going back to this if you're in a state you're in a construct an order a structure and if that structure is not what it ought to be or what you feel like it ought to be and it's not complete or whole perfect the only way it's going to get better is it has to get something outside of that structure so mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, there's, and and obviously there's an infinite amount of ways you can go outside of that. But I think that as soon as like if I'm just trying to map out how this happens, you have that structure, you have to go outside. That's generally speaking that hero's journey, and then when you go there, because it's chaos, just by nature of chaos and its definition, you will encounter something anomalous, something beyond your words, because if it was in your words within your vocabulary within your structure it was already in the structure to begin with and as soon as you have that that anomaly in my sense so again i'm kind of redefining my terms with the mystical mystical experiences that anomaly is in and of itself a mystical experience and essential in that in those stages leading towards change that anomaly can be terrifying could be horrifying dramatic and maybe even damaging but it can also be healing, but that, but that's where it's going to, that's where it's going to converge at the anomaly. And then it can become something that can kind of break you down or create the opportunity to heal. And that anomalous experience, I would say always has some sort of mystical component to it. And so um, I'm trying to think if I hope I'm not confused here or lost you on that, but that's that's kind of the way that I try to represent that. I know my my yeah. words and descriptions are not as maybe not as universal as what you guys use, but I like it. I, I can picture someone 
like treading water in an ocean, starting to panic, and they don't see the way out. Uh, but all of a sudden comes a life preserver, something to hold on to outside of anything they could see that helps pull them out of that. Or how we talk about psychedelics creating, you know, maybe a peak enlightened state where it's a radical change in perspective, like flip things upside down, see with new eyes, you know, the seeker all of a sudden becomes a seer. And you see, like, what mess you got stuck in, and you might even see the way forward. I think one of the reasons I, sorry if I kind of derail a little bit, but one of the reasons I was kind of fumbling on some of my words is because I was trying to process this concept of the dark revelation, the dark side of the anomaly. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that's an interesting topic for a future one, because I think it'd be interesting to contextualize some, not all, but to, to maybe just at least play around with that lens in terms of mental illness, how that anomaly, when someone encounters that dark side, that dark mystical experience and how that affects people. And, and the, an example, just a quick one of that would be, you know, someone who can't talk in front of other people. Why? Because he had one experience. He went out into chaos. He went out into that world and had something bad happen. And it was so bad and it's so dramatic. And when you hear people describe those experiences, they really are like very dramatic. I mean, you can, you can have them show them in art and, and you'll get all these weird mystical components to that negative experience that led to some sort of pathological, um, not the best word there, but just led to a problem in their life, something that's leading to mental health. And so one of the curious things about the psychedelics is by, in general, they're very positive. You know, everyone comes in afraid of some sort of dark, gonna die, demons attack me experience, but that's very, very rare with those. You get more dark ones just going out the course of life. Yeah, and it depends what medicine we're talking about, because we deal with the psychedelics like ketamine, which has a calming quality to it and it's more neutral in its uh like the dream-like content that might come up where a classic psychedelic especially the serotonergic ones that flood of serotonin release brings with it more natural insight you know we have to work a bit harder to apply that in ketamine but if you look at things like pcp or uh methamphetamine those types of hallucinations can come with more paranoia or more darkness naturally um, and are working through a completely different mechanism um, like an intense over uh, abundance of dopamine rushing through your system yeah and sometimes the even on these serotonergic ones the the people can have pretty dark frightening experiences And we've used words today like, you know, potential, therapeutic potential, that, that just because you have a bizarre mystical experience doesn't automatically mean it's going to be meaningful and, and insightful and life-changing. Yeah. Um, that's one of the reasons why we're doing what we're doing, is we want to bring psych- the healing potential of psychedelics into the therapeutic context and yeah. provide people with guidance on integration and, and meaning-making. Not that we're necessary to that process, but I think we can help quite a bit. Um, but sometimes the, the dark, scary experiences are the most therapeutic because um, often what makes them dark and scary are the things that are hiding out in our own subconscious that we've been avoiding, that we've been ignoring, that have been eking out sideways. 
This, yeah. as Freud would put it, this libidinal energy has been cathected at certain psychosexual developmental stages, and we uh, didn't process it. So it's causing a complex or a fixation. And psychedelics help us, un, you know, open the cellar door. We yeah. don't want to see what's in there, but if we have the courage to go in there and process and make sense of, then healing potential is realized. Yeah, they shine a light on the dark corners of ourselves or help us go into the places that we would otherwise be too afraid. And to do that, you need a supportive setting. You need a safe place uh, because that you crack that open without the support or the therapy around it. That can be quite disruptive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the other factor is that psychedelics, Stan Groff calls them nonspecific amplifiers of what's in our subconscious and so you go in with a lot of anxiety uh, it might blow it up you know hence the need to be supported and pay attention to your mental state and set and setting going in mm-hmm. i wonder if some of the results um that that recent studies have found in trait changes so mm-hmm. people going from uh, like on the like on the uh, the ocean scale on uh, openness to experience yeah. they go from less open to more open and these are psychological traits that we think are usually pretty static. Personality traits are generally pretty static. Um, I wonder if those are mediated by the mystical experience. Like there was one study I read um, that uh, was maybe a survey of atheists who mm-hmm. had a psychedelic experience. And of the atheists, the self-identified atheists surveyed, 50% of them no longer identified as atheists after a very strong yeah. mystical psychedelic experience. Well, there's some evidence right there. I think it's... It's also pretty intuitive that if you have some blinders on or you have some really tightly held prior beliefs, ego structures governing what you think is possible, and then you go in with a psychedelic and you dissolve those, those ego structures, those tightly held beliefs, and you, you can call it like you go from spotlight consciousness, aiming at one thing, to lantern consciousness, like kids are before they get so conditioned all the way then you're more open you see it on the brain scans your brain is firing across pathways that don't often communicate and you can see where the openness comes from yeah and that openness allows you to reinterpret uh your place in the world like i was saying before and that often um leads to changes in religious and spiritual beliefs i think yeah and you, and you see people who are already religious, already have strong um, religious beliefs, have uh, psychedelic experiences that will reinforce their beliefs, but also provide them new, new, a new take yeah, on their and, relationship to God and whatever. Uh, yeah, they don't necessarily change your beliefs, but they, they expand your faith or deepen your spirituality. Mm-hmm. I heard one person, when they were describing different types of spiritual experiences, bringing in some of the religious subtext there that that you have ones that are predominantly more just like spiritual and some that are more prophetic and most of the psychedelics it's worth noting fall in that more spiritual category i've not had anyone come out of this just like oh my goodness i am god or you know they, they come in with with something really uh the word it keeps coming into my mind is like didactic like they don't mm. just come out with this uh huge change of their whole life it's very much more uh feeling connected with things feeling connected with themselves that's just a good definition of what psychedelic means but they they've they've just enhanced the struck like it's interesting when i say that i kind of counter 
uh, counters some of the aspects of how it breaks down structures, but it, it's going to enhance some of the most fundamental structures that are of the self maybe is that one way to, is that appropriate to say that what what at the end of the day what it's doing is it's taking the most the most fundamental structures that are you the most real you the highest you the self the psyche and it's going to enhance that well i think that's one reason why it's really therapeutic because it kind of rescues you from the conditioned mind like reed was talking about with kids a lot of our suffering is the result of bad lessons that we learned along the way in our developmental path and psychedelics return you to that child beginner's mind, the lantern consciousness, yeah. and allow you to like to edit, to revise some of those lessons. If you want to know what a psychedelic experience is like, have a tea party with a four-year-old. <laughs> you know, they're just always in this, you know, beginner's mind, mystical state where anything's possible and they can believe in magic. And we start to uh, condition that out of ourselves as a human race. So in as much as there's some component of psychopathology that's a result of our maladaptive structures that we've either picked up from learning from other people or have just somewhat haphazardly constructed ourselves, as those ones get broken down, that it allows us to connect more with whatever that true self is, which is kind of a weird thing to say because that's a hard thing to define what sure. actually is the true self, but that's that metaphysical thing I pointed to before, like what's actually going on. There's something you're connecting with. What is that? The universe mm -hmm. substitute word for that is just the true self. There's, I mean, yeah, there seems to be some characteristics of what we might call the true self that are pretty consistent across mm -hmm. people. Right. Um, we have certain basic needs we have, and some of those needs involve needs for connection, um, needs to feel like you have a place and a purpose. So I think uh, a lot of our suffering is the result of a distortion of our realization of those needs. Like, oh, I don't have a purpose. Either mm -hmm. I'm, my life is pointless. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm alone in this life. Those basic existential questions um, are sometimes assisted, like our, our, our efforts to answer those questions are assisted by a mystical type experience. Mm -hmm. And for a, a practical take on identifying that true self, um, I like to look at internal family systems, IFS, and Dick Schwartz, who created IFS, his, his take on that. And we were, we were just on Zoom with him the other week talking about the pairing of psychedelics with IFS, um, and he referenced these again. But I pulled them up here. The eight C's of that true self is when you notice curiosity, calm, clarity, connectedness, confidence, courage, creativity, compassion. Uh, you know, one or more of those are like signposts or, or signals pointing you towards, you might be uh, tapping into that true self. I think so. Gentlemen, any other ideas or thoughts that we think we need to cover on the mystical experience? I, I think, you know, we haven't answered the question for the entire community. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, is the mystical experience necessary? Lots of really smart folks are doing good empirical research to, to suss that out. Um, I think if psychedelic compounds come to market that uh, sort of find a way to cut out the mystical experience, there might be some utility if, yeah. if, if anything else, it'll increase access to maybe some kind of healing 
that uh, for people who really, for whatever reason, want to avoid that quote-unquote side effect? There's an accessibility challenge when you look at uh, a six-hour MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session supported by two therapists. Um, And how do we get that to uh, all the people who need it? Uh, You can see why some people are trying to find ways to um, provide more scalable access and and for those who are either terrified of or not ready for an intense full psychedelic mystical experience so i i agree with what you both said that that there may be value there we're we seem to all be of the opinion that we quite like the mystical experience and it proves extremely useful therapeutically but uh i like to uh let go of any judgment that says we know all the answers. And sure, there may be benefits in neuroplasticity of certain compounds. Um, in fact, the whole uh, microdosing world, while there's a lot of research to be done still, you can see how they're trying to tap into some of these other benefits, um, the more subtle ones that aren't a complete mystical experience by taking smaller repeated doses of these things. Yeah. James Fadiman has entered the chat. <laughs> yeah. His uh, microdosing protocols and his survey research suggests there's a, a lot to be gained by sub psychedelic doses. Of these yeah. Um, any movies to reference Derek uh, <laughs> with regard to the mystical experience? What, uh, what dreams may come that Robin Williams movie. Oh yeah. Beautiful. Mm hmm. That always comes to my mind when I think of like uh, an artist's rendition of a journey through the the numinous, you know. The mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a good one. You had our uh, group of providers watch an Avatar episode once. Oh, yeah. The Guru is that episode. Uh, Last Airbender. Avatar? Uh-huh. Oh, it's so, the best cartoon in the world. Yeah, absolutely the best cartoon in the world. That one's good. Mm-hmm. Um, he. And that, the thing that's kind of revealed to him is his unwillingness to let go, which is mm-hmm. interesting because that I've, I've seen that same psychedelic conclusion with a patient before where it's like, I, he went, he sees a door and he comes to himself, not in an actual personage, but it's as if he came to himself saying, you need to open that door. You need to open that door. And he's like, I went to open the door and I just wasn't ready yet. And I went away from it. And then the experience wasn't as comfortable after that, but that was the conclusion. You know, the message from that experience was you have to open that door. Aang, you kind of have to let go. You have to be willing to let go of your relationship with Katara. Yeah. If you guys haven't seen Avatar yeah. Last Airbender, greatest. If you don't, Not the movie. Don't watch the movie, You'll please. never be able to go <laughs> to the Avatar state at all. No, I, I freaking love that cartoon. <laughs> it's no awesome. shame. I love it. Well, the mystical experience, uh, I was seeing who would get to the thing first. I don't think it has to be a, um, you can only have a biological medical conclusion or a mystical experience. We can have both. And that's the key is trying to get the best of both worlds. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're able to kind of catapult off of some of these psychedelic medicines and find some mm. medicines that will be of great benefit that will cause a lot of healing without the psychedelic experience. But I, I've yet to find a medicine that will fix an abusive parent, you know, and, and for that they need therapy. And, and there is something I'm convinced of at least that there is something of benefit, a potential benefit at least through these mystical experiences that have a tremendous therapeutic potential and value. 
because there's always going to be limits to what we can offer with medicine. And so we try to do our best with both here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's why you can have your cake and eat it. So let's do that. I don't know how it gets better than that. I love doing both. Yeah. Yeah. Let's as a psychedelic medicine community, let's not be dogmatic and territorial. Let's uh, turn to the science and um, trust the wisdom that's come before us. And, uh, you know, use all the tools at our disposal to help each other and heal the world. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us today. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. This will help us get into the ears and faces of more people and help us put wind in the sails of the psychedelic medicine renaissance. Thanks for listening. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.